When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In 2006, Jennifer Michael Hecht spoke to the Institute about her book, The Happiness Myth. Hecht is a poet and historian who holds a PhD in the history of science from Columbia University. She has published four books of nonfiction and three books of poetry, and has taught at the MFA programs at Columbia University and the New School. Jennifer Michael Hecht, as you know, has written a wonderful history of doubt called Doubt History, and is a fine, fine poet, and today is going to talk about her latest subject, which is... Happiness. The book is probably going to be called Happy, because there are tons of books called Happiness This and Happiness That, and none apparently called Happy, so that's the phone call I got from my publisher recently. (laughs) The book grew out of my book on doubt, which had grown out of my book on the end of the soul. The end of the soul was a work of the history of science, which came to investigate a lot of aspects of the history of atheism. And... I found that there were no histories of atheism that you could really count on because they were just so polemic. Everybody was willing to take half quotes to either pretend that people really believed in God or that people didn't really believe in God, depending on what you wanted to prove. That was how the history of doubt came about. And the history of doubt was surprising to me with how rich it was in people who didn't believe in God throughout history and not skipping over the Middle Ages, as everyone says they only say that this century. It, it was a silly idea that started in the 20s, really, in history. And it, it's just not true. You can find wonderful examples of absolute atheism in even European Middle Ages. But everybody who questions whether or not there's God or actually says there isn't one, just a tremendous number of them want to pony up some kind of reason for living. How to live, how to be happy under circumstances where there isn't someone who is going to actually dole out happiness according to worth. And that was what was really extraordinary for me, how much positive ideas and ideology came out of what we usually think of as just a negation. So it was really very much the history of doubt that made me want to put together what people's best ideas for how live in the most fundamental way, not the highfalutin ideas of virtue, which of course we all use a little virtue now and again, but it's exhausting. And what we're trying to do is we want to be happy, especially nowadays we don't even try to bandage that idea over with ideas of virtue or family honor or God. We really just go ahead and say that we want our children to be happy and we ourselves want to be happy. And yet if you ask anyone what that means, the idea seems both so obvious and so opaque that it seems almost childish to speak to it, but from both sides, that we don't know what it is and that we do know what it is. So it was really from this kind of feeling of wanting to track it down in some very particular ways, more of which will come out as I go through it. I wanted also to start with you by saying that there's a kind of methodology that goes on behind all of the chapters in this book that is really about 
the sense that we have in our times that we can use the phrase, it turns out. It turns out that broccoli is this. It turns out that pollution is this. It turns out that stress. We have a kind of extraordinary blindness to the idea that we are an era in history. How we can be blind to this when we are the most aware of different eras in history as any other period in time. We have this vast historical store which we're constantly dipping into to amuse each other. And yet we act like now we're done. We've reached a kind of obvious truth that makes us feel like the stuff that we're doing is natural in a new, whole new way. I like to take the example of t-shirt and jeans. People think t-shirt and jeans aren't going anywhere. T-shirt and jeans is just the most comfortable thing in the world. Where could it go? How could we get rid of it? And yet, if you compare that to, uh, say, a corset, and you realize that nowadays, to be attractive, you want your bones showing under the t-shirt. That's extraordinary. You know, won't it be obvious for someone in the near enough future to give some kind of a structure to a, at least a woman's outfit, though you go back to chain mail and it's the same thing. Men are now putting the chain mail under their skin, right? You're supposed to work out at the gym such that you have the same kind of extraordinary strength and attractiveness that now we, we've put much of it right under the skin instead of on top of the skin. And yet we see what we're doing now as natural and easy to understand. I just noted a few others. Garnished lettuce at most meals, the way we have salad, and then we just think of it as, you know, it's just, of course, we need salad. The hell is that? That's not staying. It's not staying. History doesn't screw around with things like that. That doesn't stay. Professional sports, not staying. Famous actors, very strange. Very strange. And then to go and interview the people who pretend to be Cyrano de Bergerac and ask him how he feels about Cyrano. It's really very historically specific. Top hats and bustles seem to us so much like people going out of their way to say, hi, look at my giant intelligence. Hi, look at my giant ass. Then you look at what we do now and we want our butts to look small, but we put the bustles under the skin and the breasts. And for men, since a large forehead no longer indicates intelligence, only youth does, we sew hair onto the man's forehead and bring it down. Again, it would look absolutely extraordinary to other historical moments, and it will look absolutely insane to future moments. We sort of have to do this. Even though I'm profoundly interested in happiness on its own, because after all, what else is there? Especially when you're depressed. <laughs> on the other hand, it's just an incredibly juicy way to get a look at current madness. It's very hard to get your head out of your own culture, as we all know. And this question of happiness, it's just a very fruitful way to, to investigate these kinds of things. So I feel like the research that I did for this book and the thinking that I did about this book, it left me with a much more enchanted world than I thought we had. A world that seems much more magical and full of symbolism and that we're all responding to these kinds of games much more than I did when I was going into the project. I just thought I'd talk to you a little bit about what this book is about. Um, I've got six chapters, and the six chapters are money, drugs, wisdom, celebration, bodies, and art. Um, you ask somebody how they're feeling, and they say they're not happy, and you want to help them. Certainly, bodies comes to mind. We all think about physical things that you can do to make yourself happier, exercise or eat differently. We think about money as making life easier or making life happier. These seem to me to be sort of obvious, large structured things. I wasn't looking at love or faith. I'm sort of taking it as a given that there is such a thing as joy in this world 
and yet we're all miserable anyway. <laughs> so I'm, I'm separating out the joy and saying, yes, joy exists, but what's the problem and how is it that we manipulate it? And these six things seem to be the ways that people most obviously attempt to manipulate the happiness in their lives. So I thought I'd start with drugs. Okay, with drugs, one of the first things that I introduce is why does our culture prefer Zoloft to opium? Why is it that 100 years ago you sipped opium? A good girl, a pregnant good girl, was supposed to sip her opium and not exercise. It was very important that she conserve her energy. Nowadays, you're supposed to exercise and, of all things, don't take any drugs. It's an extraordinary switchover, and it's all cultural. It's all cultural. Nobody ever came up with some proof that the laudanum was hurting the babies. Nobody ever came up with any proof that the exercise was beneficial as opposed to tiring out. Okay, so why Zoloft is, is better than opium? It seems to me mostly about the fact that we all drive cars. We need clear-headedness nowadays in a way that you never did before. You could be stoned off your butt and a horse is not going to drive you 60 miles an hour into a wall. Unless the horse is stoned too, you're okay. But with a car, it's a really different situation. And we're also all captains of industry in a way we never were before. You know, Galen was uh, Marcus Aurelius's physician, and he constantly prepared tinctures of opium for him. And Aurelius was in on it, and he would, he would say a little more, a little less. Once you know that, we have to take the meditations just a little bit. I mean, I feel like college classes deserve, there should be a drug charge for the class too. I mean, clearly the man was not only relying on his philosophy, which is some of the best self-help philosophy you can ever find. He says such incredibly strong things, like if you fear death, ask yourself several times a day while you're doing chores whether this is the thing you're gonna miss. I think that's just so funny. He really gives you very helpful things and it seems like, well, yes, if you could only get your mind right, you'd be happy. Except the person telling you this is taking a lot of opium. The fact that our culture has decided to ignore that throughout history happiness has been partially mitigated by drugs, it's just amazing. And we stand around saying how we are using a lot of drugs. It doesn't really seem that way to me. If you start to look into how much drug use was in the past, of course, called different things at different times, but still the amount of opium ingested is pretty amazing. Especially in the Muslim world where you're not allowed alcohol, opium was fine, no problem. And they had apothecaries in the Muslim world in the eighth century, and they were mostly selling galenics, which were opiums, different mixtures of opiums by the 12th century in Europe. So this idea that we're all dealing with money, we're dealing with each other's money, another reason why clear-headedness has a different kind of intensity than it has in the past. And if we were to get rid of the cars and maybe the ATM machines, if we were living in more simple ways, might it not be possible to readmit bliss? You notice how bliss is really something that we think of as a side effect of drugs that is problematic. Zoloft is great, Prozac is great because they don't give you a buzz. And we say we're afraid of the buzz because people will then take too much. But that's not only it. Caffeine throughout history has been a happiness drug. I got tons of quotes of tea and coffee as happiness drugs. And nowadays it's only a productivity drug. And that's so we can enjoy it in peace. And even if you look at, you know, in the 20s and the 30s, how you got coffee. But just look at the 20th century. We had coffee shops. 
which were about coffee breaks. They were about resting. You got a weak cup, a small weak cup of coffee, and a woman would look on and watch the waitress and see when your coffee was running out. She cares about you. This is a maternal nurturing zone. She comes over, she pours you more coffee. It is about happiness. Jump over 50 years and come to Starbucks where there's a kind of pantomime of efficiency. They're not very fast in there, but four different people are involved. So it looks like an assembly line and everyone has their laptops and people are doing work there. Remember the old coffee shop? There weren't people doing work. There weren't mothers minding children. And another thing that lets you in on this is that at the Starbucks, you can sit for five hours with an empty drink. But even if you have a full drink and you've been there only five minutes, you can't sleep. No napping. This is not a resting place. This is a productivity place. Same drug in, in all these cases. I found while I was looking through this, two of my favorite poems, which I just never noticed before. This is Keats' Ode to Autumn. It's just a little section. He's talking about autumn, right? And he's been talking about her. She's just, you know, luxurious. And she's just overfed and <laughs> overproducing. And he says, sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor, thy hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind, or on a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with the fumes of poppies. That is... He's telling me what historians have told me when you look deeply and closely at a given moment, that drugs were sort of unavoidable. That in a starvation culture and in Europe until 1850, every generation knew famine. It's not all agricultural revolution that changed that, it's also industrial revolution, it's distribution. Just like we have enough food to feed everybody today, but it's distribution, it's getting the food to the hungry people fast enough. And once Europe had railroads, that was feasible in a way that it had never been before. So when people get hungry enough so that you find them dead in the fields with grass in the mouth or having gnawed their own hands or knees, which is not uncommon, right through European history, there would be famines and people would get that desperate. Bread made of sawdust, you know, people doing whatever they could. You ate rotting food, you ate poppies, you ate mandrake, you ate all sorts of things that were hallucinogenic. And again, this is not my argument. This is historians of, of more specific periods in the Middle Ages. But then to find Keats saying that, yeah, sure, in autumn, if you walk down a furrowed field and look for the people who are harvesting and you find them asleep because a wind blew from a poppy field nearby. You were living in a different world here. And it's also a very praised experience. You know, this was a nice aspect of it. The 10th Holy Sonnet. John Donne, death be not proud. What Donne says to death is, don't be so proud of yourself. One of his main points is that sleep is good. Why should we be scared of sleep? Especially poppy sleep. And he says, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. So he's not saying we love life for what it is. And he's not constantly saying, oh, there's an afterlife that's going to be so great. Part of what he's saying is I am exhausted. And this idea of rest from either charms or poppy is so sweet that I'm extending that to death and seeing it. But really he says poppy or charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? That's really a praise of poppies, which again, we just whoosh, we don't even see it. Okay, on to wisdom. This quote from Montaigne is what made me write this book. He's writing about 1576. What good can we suppose it did Varro, the great Roman 
philosopher who was much more in ascension in Montaigne's time. He was thought of as the philosopher of the Roman Empire. What good can we suppose it did Varro and Aristotle to know so many things? Did it exempt them from human discomforts? Were they freed from the accidents that oppress a porter? Did they derive from logic some consolation for the gout? For knowing how this humor lodges in the joints, did they feel it less? Were they reconciled to death for knowing that some nations rejoice in it, and with cuckoldry for knowing that wives are held in common in some regions? On the contrary, though they held the first rank in knowledge, one among the Romans, the other among the Greeks, and in the period when knowledge flourished most, we have not heard for all that that they had any particular excellence in their lives. In fact, the Greek has a hard time to clear himself of some notable spots in his. <laughs> this is also Montaigne. Have they found that sensual pleasure and health are more savory to him who knows astronomy and grammar? And I have seen in my time a hundred artisans, a hundred plowmen, wiser and happier than rectors of universities. And he's even specific that this is a virtuous happiness. This isn't some dumb happiness that without training, good people do the right thing. And that happiness that they get from that is really rich. And that knowledge is a terrible waste. He also quotes Horace saying, does the illiterate's tool stand less erect, which I think gets to it rather nicely. <laughs> Ecclesiastes is another one which is just amazing. The extent to which, you know, Colette, who wrote Ecclesiastes, is, he does say that knowledge is knowledge exceeds wisdom as light exceeds darkness. And then he says, wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I know that one fate befalls them all, the wise man and the fool die alike. The second section in Ecclesiastes is called Wisdom is Meaningless. And he says that he devoted himself to explore by wisdom everything under the sun. And the result was, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He still comes out on the side of wisdom, but he's making it very clear. It's not just knowledge. Even wisdom is questionable in terms of how happy it makes you. And you know, you people know philosophers. They cry a lot, don't they? It doesn't necessarily work. And it's interesting that we always pretend it does work. We really tend to think of philosophy as capable of giving us the tools we need. We certainly tell the students, this is going to help you. But when you go back and you find the really great philosophers, they whisper in your ear, eh, don't be too confident. A little opium might also help. You want to spread your options. I went through the wisdom literature and historical self-help, which I call graceful life philosophy, to try to separate it out from sort of epistemological philosophy and cosmological philosophy, but also not let it carry on that kind of silver philosophy that we often think of Epicurus and Stoicism. We think of it as a sort of secondary philosophy somehow because it is about how to live your life. Again, you have to ask why, since that is all we're doing here is living our lives and coming to understand the world the more you understand the world, the more you understand that it's made by your brain. It's made by how we're thinking of things. So the idea of not being that concerned about how we should live, it's like not being concerned about how the computer's made and just being concerned about the answers that come out. It, it doesn't hold up. But in any case, I went through the, all of these to see what stood out, and I, can't, I distilled all of wisdom to four simple principles. Wow. Didn't even tire me out. Yeah. First, know yourself. You got Socrates telling you to know yourself, and that's really about knowing why you believe what you believe. These are intellectual ideas, and they come about by asking yourself brave questions. If the question doesn't hurt, if you're not appalled by the question, you're not doing it right. I love this country because it drives me absolutely crazy that we could have this red state, blue state, 
antagonism. We were red diaper babies back then, but now we have to change color and we're blue diaper babies. It's confusing. But in any case, the idea of being on the left and what it meant to confront the people on the right, and yet when I look at the numbers and I realize that if I were born in one of the red states, the statistical probability that I would believe some of these things that now seem appalling, I find this unhinging. I find it bizarre that we all talk as if all of this is just ideas. It's not ideas. If we were born in the other state, it would come out different. It's not genetic, right? It's very frustrating. And I know it's upsetting to even think about it. But if you pick even one of the favorite issues that the other side has, and you try to convince yourself of what they believe, you start to get a sense of how knowledge constructs itself because you don't even want to listen to the arguments. You don't want to think about the arguments. you got a big electric fence around the backyard you think you're playing freely in. And that's interesting. Anyway, so know yourself from a Socratic point of view, I think it's really valuable, especially if you stop just asking Socrates questions, but you ask his style of questions. And if your audience isn't as upset as his audience gets, you're not doing it right. And by his audience, I really mean you. But then the Freudian aspect of it is equally important. The modern idea that you can take apart the symbology in your mind and start to see things very differently. Again, it's a really profound idea and it's sort of left alone in the world of pathology and neurosis and feelings. And it's not sufficiently brought over into the idea of how we understand the whole world. There's also this historic idea of knowing yourself, of knowing a tremendous amount of information in case you get locked in a prison and need to tell yourself stories, which it sounds so funny, but it's really very consistent throughout history that people say you have to make a friend of your own mind. The second one is control your desires. All the ancient philosophies and all the modern self-help, everybody's talking about controlling your desires. I think this one's a little overinflated. You also want to get to know your desires and explore your desires. Cicero's great joke that the man who is pretending he doesn't mind being caught in the storm next to the man who is yelling because he's soaking wet. The virtue is not all that obvious. That's, of course, because Cicero didn't believe you could deeply train yourself to actually not mind the storm. That for the most part, it's really just controlling your facial expressions, which, again, it's not the biggest thing that wisdom has offered us. The third one is take what's yours, which I sort of talk about as carpe vivum. You know, it's not just carpe diem is a wrong turn. Happiness has three aspects uh, I included, and one is having a good day, and one is having euphoria, and one is having a good life, and they don't go together. If you have a good day, you're eating a cheeseburger and drinking a beer in front of television, this will go nowhere in terms of euphoria, and it will go nowhere in terms of a good life, but it is a good day. If you exercise that day and only eat carrots, maybe you're going somewhere towards a good life, but again, no euphoria, no good day. And euphoria, well, first of all, there's you got to get the parking to get there and there's that, the dry mouth and the headache the next day and also dealing with this person who you don't like enough to have hot enough sex to call it euphoria. I mean, euphoria is always trouble, but luckily it's spice. You don't need much. You need a few over the course of a lifetime and they last so well, right? Ten years. You're still remembering that drug trip or that church camp experience you went on when you saw God when you went up to the mountain. People base a whole lifetime of philosophy and spiritualism on these very tiny experiences which they don't generally seek to repeat because they are, again, exhausting. But their cost effective is exactly. Okay. They last a good long time, but you need some. And if you try to get more than some, it's like asking for rarity to be more common. It doesn't quite work. You need the downtime. So the idea of carpe diem, or live every day as if it was your last, 
oh, don't live every day as if it was your last. You'll never get any of the happiness that's the building kind of happiness, the good life happiness. And also you will be astounded by how much work euphoria takes. You know, if it was your last day, you have to do these big things where you gotta climb a mountain, where you gotta ride an electric bull. There's a reason why you make every day's choices, the choices you make. That's another thing I didn't really think I would get into so much, but the idea that we all have three people inside of us is a very old one. It's certainly pre-Freudian, the idea that there's a, a sort of drill sergeant and there's a desiring kid and then there's a heart of gold observer. You know, there isn't. I mean, I know how it's useful to think that there is, but another way of thinking about the reason that we wake up Monday morning and say, I'm not going to eat chocolate cake until I'm what I weighed when I was 20, and Thursday night you eat the chocolate cake is not the difference between the ascendancy of your drill sergeant persona and your little kid persona. There's not one bad and one good. There are different pieces of information coming in. Monday morning, you don't want cake. Monday morning, you have a different kind of information about the ratio of euphoria and life and good day. And Thursday night, you know that you can give yourself quite a little buzz. You can have yourself quite a good time. And that good time wasn't available Monday morning, and that's why you rejected it Monday morning. And Thursday night, you're making a different analysis. That is, every time we disobey experts' rules, we are not breaking the rules. We are thinking things through. We are making different kinds of decisions. And I think that's very useful because I think as much as this country suffers from problems like obesity or not getting enough exercise or something, we suffer perhaps more from a kind of worry over this stuff and spending on it and talking about it to death. Again, I don't want to be mistaken for an apologist for laziness or for thinking everything's super just the way it is, but I'm not going to avoid the truth in service of this fear of being that. And I think we worry for the same reasons historical people have worried. We worry about things that are not stable and we worry in order to deal with anxiety about being human and that we can actually look at that and alter it. So Take What's Yours is another one that it's motivational speakers today who really harp on this. You go through history, you do not find one philosopher who tells you to seize the day by getting rich and famous. They all tell you, if you are rich and famous, you should enjoy it. But it is not worth going and getting because it's very exhausting to keep, it's hard to get, it has a lot of problems that come with it. All great philosophers tell you, yeah, it's helpful enough to be able to put enough food on the table to have guests. So beyond that, enjoy it if you have it, but don't make a point of it. Our great motivational speeches are almost all fictional. They're all in plays or fiction. Until you get to modern times where you hear these rallying people, you know, get out of your chair and go do these things. Philosophers all tell you to get your mind right. You can sit right in your chair and get your mind right. So it was know yourself, control your desires, take what's yours. Take what's yours is also just means if you're a teacher, you have to be the teacher. You have to scold the children when they don't do the right thing. If you put down your role, no one else can do their role. If you drive so slowly so that you won't make any, other people will anticipate wrongly what you're going to do and they'll get in accidents. It's part of wisdom and happiness to take up your role and to trust the role to do a lot of your work for you. The last one, remember death is right through history. Remember death, remember death, remember death. And even nowadays, you know, if you had a near-death experience, people think of you as more happy. We assume this, right? And it's right through all the classic ideas of how to be happy, that if you could just remember death, well, there's the seize the day type, which is this hilarious thing with 
first a magazine wrote and said, you know, what would you do if American philosophers, American scientists had realized that the world was about to end. And he says how you would oh, throw yourself at the feet of this beautiful woman and you would go to the Louvre and you would do all these different things. And, and he actually died three months later and he never did any of this. He didn't want to throw himself on anybody's feet. He wanted to stay in bed under the covers. And he did. You know, our behavior is a piece of information and yet we don't treat it as a piece of information. Remember death is a really interesting one, because if you remember it too much, it's, it doesn't help. If you remember it all the way and stay there, it's morose and it's tiring and you can't invest enough. You don't build. It's exhausting. You feel sad. It's hard to think about the future. So the key is, as far as I understand it, is you have to really convince yourself you're going to die. Really remember death. And then forget it. Somehow, try, work on it. Just try to put it out of your mind. Pretend you're not going to die. You have to get it out of your head because we're alive now and you don't want to always be thinking about, I mean, this isn't that great a carnival anyway. You don't want to constantly be looking at your watch and thinking about when you have to leave. When you have to leave is the least of your problems. It's really just how you're going to manage these rides. I thought I'd just add one little thought on that, which is that we nowadays shun death so much that we treat the meat in the supermarket so that it doesn't bleed we take anybody who looks like they might be about to die and they get, we get them into the hospice quick so we're not all looking. They take every aspect of death out of our lives and then look at the newspapers. If it bleeds, it leads. We're fascinated by blood and death, but we've got it corralled into one specific place, which is so genre-specific that it acts as myth. We're going to those things to get rocked, to get sort of punched in the face by death, and then to come back into this world where we pretend it isn't there. Money is a big one. If you ask a person what makes them happy, nobody's going to say, oh, money makes me happy. But if you told the person they had one wish right now, it's a good bet they might say they want some money. Again, behavior is the most obvious ways that we think of in order to seek out happiness tends to be to try to get more money. And then we all say to each other, oh, money doesn't make you happy. Well, all that behavior is information. And it's certainly information that money does make you somewhat happy. I don't think that we're all just idiots doing something that has no effect. I think money does make us happy. For one thing, nowadays, because money stole a lot of the old things that made us happy. Money gave us enough room so that we don't have to know our neighbors, for instance. And then we're lonely and we buy expensive concert tickets so that we can get together with our neighbors. Even television and our more sophisticated media, again, you're alone watching these things. You're with your tiny little family watching the nation. We have the nation now and we have the family. But that whole huge swath where most people live throughout most of history has been eroded by capitalism and democracy. We decided we didn't want it. We voted with our feet. We didn't want mandatory church services, imperial parades and stuff. We made it very clear we don't. But we invested much more meaning in the nation and much more meaning long before you die for the nation or your family. But we all know if you did something bad in the... 18th, 19th century, your mom would disown you for the sake of the family name, your mom. Can you imagine now disowning your sister because of your great aunt's name? No way. The entire extended family where we used to die for, that middle realm, now it's all the nation and the families. So you got your three-person family watching television at home about the nation. And the, that whole middle realm where you have these interactions, where you have your social, cultural life has been really reduced. And Money is what did it, money and technology, and we use the money to buy it back. Watching a show called Friends instead of having any, which works. I mean, I know it's silly, but it also works. It means that you can go into an extremely heterodox 
working environment, a very cosmopolitan place, and you have something to talk about because you can talk about Mother Mary because half the people are Protestant, half Jews, and half Jews, but you can come in and talk about what Rachel's hair looked like or whatever. I'm using an old, old show's story. But the point is that television and sports and media and all this stuff that we have as this kind of fake community actually does function pretty well for a very cosmopolitan world. It gives us something to talk about very freely with just about anybody you see. The happiness and money paradox is what's driving a lot of the new studies in happiness, which is this. In the 1950s, I started doing a lot of research, statistical questioning about money and happiness, and we had a lot of data. And we went back in the 90s, and we asked the same questions to people. We have gotten so much richer. Forget money amounts, just how many people have washer and dryer at home, which if you don't have a washer and dryer at home, it is not a joke. It is not some simple thing. It is a real difference in what your life is like. Two cars, a real difference. Even one car is a real difference. But from the 50s to the 90s, we got a tremendous amount of stuff that makes us pretty easily definable as richer than in the 50s. How many rooms per person? Big difference. And the happiness didn't change at all. We got much richer, no change in the happiness. When we ask about depression, more depression. Happiness didn't change at all. The depression one, you ask yourself, well, were they asking exactly this question? What did people think depression meant back then? But happiness, they asked a whole lot of different ways. And everybody's all up in arms. How could this be? How could this be? We have so much more stuff. And the answer that I came to is, that we don't remember to count the poor people specifically. That is, there is a huge jump, a lasting jump in happiness from poverty to okay, huge. And it lasts, we go back 10 years, 20 years later, the person still reports in many different questions, happier than when they were hungry, when they didn't know where the food was coming from, when they were humiliated on a constant basis. That one's been studied less, but I'm sure it's true. That there's a status bump and a money bump that you go from really bad to okay, and that's a real bump. And after that, it's a story of diminishing returns. If you don't have a house to getting a house, you're gonna be happy 20 years later. But if you have a nice house and you get a better house, that's gonna be a tiny little happiness bump. But it's a fallacy that's very compelling because we know that the first jump works. And so you think, well, if I'm hungry and a meal makes me happy, a huge meal will make me that much happier. Of course, your stomach's only so big. And also you can start to actually make yourself sick with it. When I was asking myself this question about money and, and happiness, the idea of happily ever after kept coming up. And I kept trying to get it out of the question until I realized, well, this is just too demanding. So I went and I started looking at the fairy tales. I'm sure you've all seen them. But when you look back at the fairy tales and how awful that wolf was, in the early fairy tales, how much Little Red Riding Hood is humiliated, made to eat the grandma's insides. She wants to get out of the bed and the wolf says no. And she says, well, I have to go to the bathroom. He says, go to the bathroom here in the bed. It's just, it really reminds you so strongly of these rape scenes. There's no question about what this is. It's about humiliation and it's about hungry and the kid's hungry, grandma's hungry. That's why I had to leave the house in the first place. Grandma's got demands, which later come up when we see the wolf in the grandma's suit. That's not just information about the wolf. That's information about grandma. You know, we had to bring this basket of food to her. Everybody in this culture is hungry. Everybody in this culture might be used for food. Nowadays, when you see a movie and you see somebody floating in the ocean and you see one of those shark fins come up, you know that this person's no longer a person. Now they're prey. Now they're food for an animal. Well, if we lived in the ocean, 
We would have gotten rid of the sharks by now and the wolves would still be running free. But it used to be we were prey. When that wolf came around, if he was hungry enough to come out of the forest, you were hungry too, your kids were hungry. Again, I don't mean to be an apologist for being you know, sort of happy-go-lucky, but we are living in the past's paradise. We are. We are not being eaten by wolves. We are not food for any other animal. And we are not generally so hungry that our stories are about it. Look at Little Red Riding Hood now. It's not even about death, right? Now it's about gender and control. And that's all we're talking about when we're talking about that story. Who does what? How do we get to the happy ending? It used to be about being eviscerated. And being eviscerated was what moms told little kids as they went to sleep because it was real enough that they had to talk it out. The fairy tales earn their happy ever after because it was at a time where you really are getting rid of the wolf. You really are getting to a point where your belly is full. It really is about marriage, a status jump that gets you out of being the scullery maid, the kid who we call cinder because you're covered in cinders all the time from this dangerous and awful job. I have only done three of, out of my six chapters, but I think I'll stop now and see if anybody has any comments. I mean, enormously uh, interesting and enjoyable talk. I, I'm wondering though if it, there seems to be an assumption you, you make that um, happiness is one thing and that the one thing, uh, a couple times you mentioned what people, seem to be, seems to be key to what people say when you ask them whether they're happy. Mm -hmm. Do they, you know, do they say I'm happier now than I was before? Where maybe you're just tapping their theory of what it is to be happy rather than, and maybe if you look at what it is to be happy, it's not one thing, it's a number of different things. There's you know, joy, there's fulfillment, there may be many different things, and maybe people answer those questions according to whether they feel, say, dissatisfied or not. This is a problem which I'm actually, in the book, bringing constantly to the door of the economists and sociologists and psychologists who do the studies. I don't actually talk about the studies very much in the book. I talk about them a lot in the money chapter, because it costs money to do studies, and so the studies tend to be about money. That is, you have to have somebody with an investment in some answer. So there are lots of happiness and money studies, and I did try to distill them down. At no point was I confident with the answers. I, I think that you can't answer these questions like that, and that's why I've tried to go about it in all these different ways, and especially not just listening to what people say, but watching what people do. If people tell me that they're happier when they're exercising, then why are so many people not exercising? I think we forget to ask that question, or we answer it with this sort of Freudian escape of the bad kid takes over. We don't have enough willpower. Well, what is willpower, and how can we manage to return phone calls and feed the kids? We seem reasonably able to do what we're supposed to do. So I totally take your point, but I lay it back on the doorstep of the people doing the studies. In terms of what I'm guessing happiness to be throughout history, you just kind of have to sniff around and see whether people report themselves as happy and whether other people report them as happy. One of the things seems to be the case that happiness is, seems to be sexual happiness. Mm -hmm. And then what comes out of sexual happiness for a lot of people, something that you only mentioned twice in passing is children. Yeah. And I know a lot of people who are happy or unhappy because of what's happening with their children. I met somebody yesterday, a very nice Greek cook, and he said, oh, I'm so miserable, horrible. I said, no. He said, I've got such terrible enemies. And I said, who are your enemies? 
I said, my children. <laughs> it seems to be a very tragic thing. Mm. And the other thing yeah, that I, yeah, uh, you, you were giving different levels of economic happiness. There's an enormous instrument of happiness in this world, and it's the chair. The difference between societies that live on the ground, all of a sudden you leave such a society and you get respect for a chair. Yes, I think that's excellent. I talk about how many people were in hard labor of either domestic service or forestry or anything where you have to stand. You go ask those people if they want to sit down. Most of them want to sit down. Nowadays, it's not true because you can handpick that. So the po portion of the population that wants to no, stand I, up I, does. I suspect but the chair they, is important. I know that. It has something to do, perhaps, with age. But whatever one's sexual preference, everybody in your blissful partner, happy with the partner, and it goes on forever. There's something that happens, it seems to me, beyond that. It may be a garden. It may be, I don't know why. That goes beyond oneself. And I think that you have to yeah. get to the beyond oneself happiness. I, I appreciate that a lot. And, and I try to make a list, especially in the wisdom section, of what everybody says you should be doing after you get to a stable point of like the know yourself stuff, you got to get there. And then Ecclesiastes will say, find some work to do and do it mightily and love your spouse. I have a whole list of what everybody says. And of course, almost all of the history of women is saying that happiness comes from nurturing the children. The only thing other than I had trouble, why you got against a nice little wolf? <laughs> but nowadays we conquer the wolf in shopping. And one of the ways that we show our dominance over it is to pity it. Your method seems to be to talk, of course, I don't know how deeply you go into this in the book, but right. four different versions of what people have thought, philosophers who've thought about this think is happiness and what leads to it, know thyself, for example. But the way you talked about that was very superficial. I mean, you, didn't, you didn't get at what Freud has to say or didn't get at what Spinoza has to say. And there are examples of philosophers who were deemed happy and wise. Socrates was one in the apology, and Spinoza is another. You don't talk about the two things that I think many people think do constitute happiness, and that's love and work. They appear in little bits and pieces here and there, which don't focus on them, and that's strange, it seems to me, because those are... I put them out at the outset as the things that have made me most happy in my life are love and art. I say at the outset of the book that I'm taking for granted that these are joys. But you can have these joys and still suffer. And But then I don't think you've then made enough distinctions between different grades. But happiness, I need to know more what you think about this happiness. Happiness it seems to me has normally been described as kind of an enduring state. It's quite compatible with the miseries that all of us feel. Nobody can get rid of those. If one has thought with feeling satisfied that you are living a good life, not being in terrible conflict with your own values. The questions don't end because what do you do with a year where you had some bliss, some real euphoria, maybe some days that were good and also some days that were bad, maybe a lot of time that was bad. Maybe you look back at that year as one of the toughest in your life. It's just like with the question of doubt. My history of doubt was over 500 pages there I was proving something existed that a lot of people said didn't. With doubt and with happiness both, of course I have the quandary of definition. It's too big. And once I go to the frontiers of it, it disappears entirely. But there's still something to talk about there. I definitely don't nail myself down to methodological definitions. I do nail myself down to being absolutely honest so that if I go into something thinking something and I see that the person is actually saying something else, I report what I see. So in terms of that, I'm very careful. 
and in terms of the overall of the subject, it is somewhat a work of art that is driven somewhat by my, I was going to say my belly, but that's a little confusing right now, right? Thank you very much. That's very useful. I'm very grateful for your talk and have a million questions, but I want to raise two unrelated questions. One has to do with your insistence on historical specificity, but the sort of lack of historical specificity. Much, I mean, you can only fear wolves where you have wolves, and that's mostly in the northern hemispheres. Many cultures have no wolves, they have fear other things. But the interesting question, really, for me all the time is what is this pursuit of happiness? That is, by the time you get to France, it's the right to life, liberty, and property. And Jefferson put this pursuit of happiness into, what does it mean? I really looked carefully until I decided that I'd figured it out. The pursuit of happiness is the right to not have to be with the crowd. It really is. It's a rich man's thing. In America, we had enough land and enough stuff so that it didn't seem entirely elitist. When you read Franklin Jefferson, Washington about their descriptions of happiness. You won't be surprised, it's very Epicurean, getting away from politics, cultivating your garden, having planned meetings every Monday night that the foreigners in town come to my house and I discuss happiness with them. The idea of the pursuit of happiness was very much about not being bossed around by the middle level of culture. Jefferson's constantly saying he doesn't want to get elected so he can actually have happiness. And what happened is they kind of left us in the lurch because we did not realize that without mandatory associations, we don't leave the house. We did for a while. Almost every large group you can think of from the Red Cross, it started between 1890 and 1920. There was huge civic devotion. You see a bump in civic devotion around the revolution and it falls off again in the Tocqueville was describing us as really associational just as it was actually stopping. And then there's this period where a lot of the old things that used to get done in the old world just didn't get done. And then you see the civic revivalism where everybody's going out to meetings all the time, trade union meetings, made politics a lot more natural. You didn't only go to a demonstration. You went to some place you were going anyway and talked about it, which is why the right is so strong now. They have the churches. They go anyway to a non-mandatory, regular meeting place where people of like mind can then chat. If we had anything like that on the left, it would be a whole different world. Instead, every time we do anything political on the left, it has to be manufactured. We used to have all these kinds of clubs, but right now, technology has made it comfortable and interesting to stay home. It used to be you needed a breeze, you needed to get away from the kids, you needed to get away from your grandfather, you needed to get away from a lot. You went out on the stoop. Of course it was annoying. People gossiped about you and you found out about it. People are awful. People are a bad way to be entertained. But you need an alternative. You need to be very uncomfortable to leave the house, but throughout history you were uncomfortable enough to do it. Nowadays we have air conditioning and heat and all the entertainment you want. And so we have to actually be pulled out of the house for community reasons. So the pursuit of happiness that Jefferson was enshrining was saying to the middle level of culture, leave me alone. I am an independent man and I will do a better job of taking care of my spiritual and emotional needs than tradition and rules will. Right now, we're in a whole different place. But yeah, I think it's a fascinating story. This has been just absolutely terrific. Thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.